So in a couple hours, um, I'm going to be coaching the soft serves, right, Andy? This is the uh, Plano Sports Association 8 and under girls coach pitch. Uh, loser bracket second place champions of the summer season that I'll be coaching. What's up? Yeah, 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 yeah. A very specific honor that I hold. Um, we're especially psyched because I don't know if y'all knew, but there's a cool front that's coming through right now. So it's only going to be 98 degrees today. That's how, that's how broken our brains are. Um, you're all insane for clapping at that. Um, we are being conditioned to live in a hellscape. It's fine. Um, so yeah, there's cool front. Uh, and uh, I'm personally excited about the game today because I have worked what some would say is an unnatural amount of time uh, putting together walk-up music for every girl on the team. Um, and just imagine the variety of songs you would hear at an eight and under girls walk-up playlist. Um, everything from things that you might expect, some Dua Lipa, someone named, I think it's, is it Blackpink? I don't, I don't know, someone nod like I know what I'm talking about. Uh, I am old. Um, and then uh, I'm very proud of Andy. She's walking up to Sabotage by the Beastie Boys. I've never been prouder. <laughs> A little tear rolled down my cheek when she told me that. One of our girls is walking up to Pantera. I'm like, yeah! Put the fear of God in these girls. Let's go. And then our, our, our littlest teammate is, um, her name is Claire. We call her Claire Bear. She's walking up to the song, I'm a Gummy Bear. Um, so that's going to be a hard pivot uh, from Pantera and I'm a Gummy Bear. Uh, so you're welcome for that earworm, parents. Uh, that's going to be in your head the rest of the day. Uh, I'm also looking forward to that pregame moment uh, when, you know, of course, uh, the coaches, we gather the girls together, and we tell them the same thing every game. You know, hey, we're here to have fun. We're here to be safe. Uh, win or lose, like, we want you to try your best. We're learning every game, and that, that's what this is about, right? Soft serves on three. Yeah. You know, you feel really inspirational as you, all right, get out there and sweat until you die. Um, um, that inspirational moment is, is fun because that is why you do it. You want, you want the girls to feel encouraged. You want them to believe in themselves through thick and thin. Um, so in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is offering something of a, a pregame speech to his disciples. He's about to send them out into the world. And uh, if you've been a part of a, a team in your life, you've heard a lot of these kinds of speeches. They're meant to bolster you, get you excited, lift you up. Jesus is God-awful at pregame speeches. Um, because what he says to them is basically a, a series of these kind of admonishments where he says things like, you're going to feel like sheep that are hunted by wolves. Uh, people are going to sell you out every step of the way. You're going to get in fight after fight, especially with people that you have. Your own family might even disown you. Are you excited yet? It's going to feel like torture, and you're probably going to die. Now, let's go get them, Tiger Jesus, on three, right? That's... <laughs> That's what Matthew 10 is like. Um, so Jesus needs to go to some like, you know, how to coach 101 uh, training, I think. Um, but what it is, in addition to, to maybe being very different than the message I hope to share with the soft serves, is it, it is Jesus being honest about what walking in the way of Jesus is going to look like for these disciples who, at this point in Matthew, have just sort of gotten on board, are really excited, and they're about to be sent out for the very first time. And he's saying, okay, before you get 
too doe-eyed about this, before you begin to think that now you're uh, working with the Messiah and this is the winning side and this is going to be all sunshine and rainbows, here, here, here's what it's going to really look like. And so there's a question sort of at the heart of Matthew 10 that Matthew is asking us, and that's this, what do we stand to lose as we walk in the way of Jesus? Because, of course, a lot of times we talk about what we stand to gain, but, but Matthew 10 is actually very clear about what do you stand to lose? What are you putting on the table? What do you risk when you choose, okay, churchy word, discipleship, when you choose to walk in the way of Jesus? And specifically, Jesus is talking about sort of the, the struggles they'll face more societally, social-wide, and then he talks about struggles they'll face maybe within their community, their local community. But then he drills down and gets real specific uh, towards the end of the chapter. He starts to talk about families. Because of all the things that, that the Messiah was supposed to upend, not everyone necessarily would have thought about the family. The family unit was like that basic essential unit. And we'll talk about more about why that was in a practical sense later on. But Jesus is getting really specific and says, this is not just going to change the way you're viewed in the society or even in your community or even amongst the folks that you know, but this is going to change your family as well. He says this. This is chapter 10 beginning in verse 34. Don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I haven't come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. People's enemies are members of their own households. He's quoting Micah there. This is him uh, quoting a passage from the prophet Micah. In 37, he continues and says, Those who love father or mother more than me aren't worthy of me. Ouch. Those who love son or daughter more than me aren't worthy of me. Those who don't pick up their crosses and follow me aren't worthy of me. Those who find their lives will lose them, and those who lose their lives because of me will find them. We're going to stop there for a moment. We hail Jesus as the Prince of Peace, but as I read not just Matthew 10, but specifically the words that I just read to you a moment ago, I begin to realize how the Prince of Peace can so frequently invite conflict into my life, especially into the places that make it really, really hard, like into our families of origin, into the families that we're born into. And I don't know about you, but religion runs deep in my family. You don't have to look too far. Obviously, I'm married to a pastor. Our family is very religious, right? Andy, you're so lucky. You get two churches. How fun is that? Um, <laughs> she's like, yes, awesome. Um, I, I, like I said, the first 12 months of therapy on me, okay? Um, <laughs> but you don't have to go very far in my family tree. You don't have to go to too many branches to find a lot of other clergy as well. I've got a, I've got a cousin who's a, a Methodist pastor um, with the Ole Miss uh, campus ministry. I've got another cousin um, who, who's a Methodist pastor down in the uh, Houston area. I've got another cousin uh, who's a Southern Baptist uh, preacher who I'm pretty sure uh, not only is he convinced that I'm going to hell, but I'm pretty sure he thinks I'm pied pipering all of you down to Satan's army as well. Um, so sorry about that. Uh, but don't worry, he, he's, uh, he, he's praying for us. Um, he, he's in that good old-fashioned Mississippi way. He, he's praying for us. Um, 
So yeah, so religion runs deep. And, and on one hand, it, it, it's a connection point for my family. You know, it allows us to speak a common language in some ways. Um, you know, a lot of my family were very proud of, of our, um, you know, uh, heritage within different streams of, of Christianity. And it's also a source uh, of intense conflict, um, uh, especially in recent years. Um, without going into too many details, there, there's members in my family, you don't have to go to too many branches too far away, who, who, are, who are gay or who identify on the LGBTQ spectrum. And that has become a source of intense conflict, as you might imagine, in a family that religion runs deep within. And all of this is swirling around, and I'm thinking about Thanksgiving coming up. Has anyone already started to think about Thanksgiving? And it's coming, by the way, just like it does every year. Um, and uh, at Thanksgiving, I'm going to be there with my cousin and her husband, the one who um, uh, was United Methodist until recently, but, but um, uh, he's a pastor, and, and my cousin and him and their family have recently left to join the more socially conservative uh, branch of Methodism that, that has started. Um, this can be our first time being around each other uh, since they made that decision, um, along with their church. And um, and I'm also going to be there, though, with my other cousin, uh, hopefully, um, and his husband. And um, the, the, I've never known Christians um, uh, to faithfully pray against a marriage. That seems like an odd thing uh, to do, to pray that a marriage dissolve. But that's exactly what a lot of my family do every day for my cousin and his husband, um, ever since he came out about a decade ago and, and got married and has been living faithfully with his husband. And, and that just... Um, that just can't be for people in my family. I've also been at Thanksgiving tables throughout the years where people's hearts have been transformed and where relationship changes people. But my point is, I know that family is messy, especially in the context of faith, that this thing that we like to talk about as being the source of love and joy and goodness can also be a source of really awkward conversations and pain and words you can't take back and broken relationships, especially within the home. Is anybody in this room with me right now? If you are, say amen. Amen. So I share this because it's the best reference point I have for who Jesus and Matthew are speaking to in the text that I just read. So who they're speaking to specifically are our first century Jewish Christians who are living in this tradition that told them over and over again to honor thy father and mother, right? This was not just in the Jewish tradition, but so many cultures in this ancient time, that, that patriarchal system, that sort of family unit system, that was everything. And you had to, you were obligated to show reverence and respect to those above you and, and to uh, command uh, those beneath you in the family order. And this was the culture that they, were, that they were raised in. But then these first century Jewish Christians, their belief in Jesus as the Messiah would have rendered them a radical in the eyes of their mother, of their father, of their siblings. And their family would have been praying for their conversion. Do you hear me, church? And they would have sent them to the rabbi to have some sense talked into them. Have you been sent to the rabbi to have sense talked into you before? Ultimately, they would likely be disowned for refusing to change themselves into accommodating their family and their family's social norms. Has that been you before? And what it impresses upon me as I try to place myself within the shoes of these first century Jewish Christians is that sometimes when we live into who God has called us to be, our families simply cannot handle it. Because our families are in love with a version of us that does not exist. Or they're in love with an idea of us that they were trying to raise. But at some point, 
we began to be stirred by the love of God within our hearts and we became true to who we are. As Aaron Maines talked about last week, we got into stillness and silence and began to understand who God had made us to be uniquely and wonderfully made. And then suddenly when we go to our families and we tell them who this person is, they, they don't recognize them because they are in love with an idea or a version of you. And so when we begin to live into the identity that God has called us to be, whether this is uh, an identity like my cousin, or maybe this is just a passion of yours, maybe this is a, a profession that you're choosing to take and your family doesn't believe in it, or, or, or you fill in the blank with your own strife. I don't know your story. But sometimes when we live into, the, into who God has called us to be, our families simply cannot handle it. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus connects discipleship or, or this idea of being a disciple with doing the will of God. It's a doing thing. It's not a thinking thing. It's not a feeling thing. It's not a mindset. It's not a doctrine or a dogma or some profession of faith that you walk down to the front of the temple and say out loud in view of the, com in view of the community. It's the faithful actions. That's what discipleship is. It's the faithful actions that come with a transformed heart. Matthew is very clear that it's about the life that we are living and so Matthew recognizes that if we're not just going to think about God or just feel about God, but begin to live according to God's love in our lives in a transformative way, it's going to create conflict at times, and especially with our family, because nobody knows who we should be quite like our family does, right? Yeah, I heard some chuckles on that one. The question becomes, and this is where I, if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this and let it just sit in your brain. You can tune me out. Just don't snore. Just sit on this for the rest of the time. The question becomes whose love ultimately will win out? The love of our family or the love that our family offers or unfortunately withholds or the love that is unconditional yet transformational, that love of God? Which love is going to win out in the end? Is it the love of family that is given and also taken away? Or is it the unconditional yet transformational love of God that is free of charge, full of grace, and upon our lives? It's not a license to be unloving to your family. I don't want you to walk out of here saying, Scott told me to be an absolute jerk, right? That's not what Jesus is saying either, but I believe what Jesus is offering is a license to not let your family dictate the love that guides your life. Jesus is allowing us to not let our family dictate the love that guides our lives. So the question for me becomes, am I choosing or am I chasing the conditional love of my family or am I walking courageously in God's love? Now, maybe you're saying like, Scott, I don't feel like I have to make that choice. Like, I don't feel like my family is, is trying to make me into something I'm not. Um, and, and I'll be honest, uh, to be quite frank, I don't know how much courage I have to choose day in and day out with my own family. Um, you know, my grandparents, they flipping love that they got a, a pastor for a grandson. Are you kidding me? I'm like king of the kids table. Um, it's awesome for me. There's not a lot of courage that I have to step into, um, but when I think of courage, I, I do think about my cousin and his husband who, you know, if they show up at Thanksgiving, they're going to walk into a house that has no pictures of their family on the wall, even though it's got everybody else's, right? Uh, they're they're going to walk into a table that nobody says the things that they were saying 10 years ago, but they're not saying the things that we wish they had said 10 years ago, right? That's the kind of courage that says, you know, I know what I'm not looking for, but, but I'm also going to show up and try to be a living witness to the way that love is at work in my life and I'm going to trust that that love in the end wins, right? That, that's courage to me. 
But then I see that Matthew's taking this a step further, in fact. And as I read this text, I have to remind myself that it's, it's rooted in this sense of evangelism, of going out. It's not just sort of like standing in your truth, but actually going out and initiating something, initiating a conversation or for these disciples some, some healing, some teaching. I realize that sometimes our, our call is not simply to take to heart when, or not to simply take heart when we're rejected, but to also be truth tellers and to risk brave conversations and, and living in God's love, as we might say, with our family. Jesus says, "I have not come to bring peace, but a sword." Did that line sit odd with you at first? You're like, "Wait, is this?" We're talking about Jesus Christ, right? It's not like, you know, uh, Jesus Goodwin or some, some other person I've never heard of before. Jesus Christ said, I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. Sometimes peace and reconciliation might actually not be possible in the moment, and the gospel-centered action might actually be initiating conflict into a place that feels peaceful, but is actually um, a, a really terrified silence, Maybe your family has been in a place where on the outside it looked and felt peaceful, but on the inside we all know it's a terrified silence. In fact, this is the first time that Matthew mentions a cross in his gospel. Jesus mentions the cross for the first time, and the thing that I can't get away from this week is that it's not Jesus' cross. The first time a cross is mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew, the first time a cross is mentioned in the canonical Bible is not Jesus' cross, it's ours. Jesus says, if you, want to be, if you want to prove worthy of the kind of love that I want this world to be transformed by, you have to pick up your cross. He's not talking about Easter. He's not talking about his crucifixion. He's not talking about any of that. He's talking about us. So the path to peace is paved with confrontation just as the path to life is walked with a cross. And confrontation is one thing, but it's more complicated when it comes in the form of family. You know, Jesus is talking about this division that his faith is going to bring in the context of Micah. Micah's the, the guy that wrote the words that are on my soul. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. Later on, a chapter later, Micah says, oh, by the way, when the kingdom of God comes, it's going to separate father from son and daughter-in-law from mother-in-law. Some of you all are like, great, I want to separate from my mother-in-law. Um, <laughs> But Mike is saying this in the context of this kingdom of God stuff is not just going to change the empire. It's not just going to change Caesar. It's not just going to change the temple. It's going to change the home. It's, it's going to get down into the nitty-gritty. Jesus is not giving us permission to be jerks again, but, but conflict might be the result of faith in action. Here, here's a real-world and grounded example. I know somebody who right now is walking through an intensely challenging season of life for their family because a member of their family finally spoke up after 30 years and said abuse is happening in this system. And, and they had suffered in silence for decades. And when I say it can look peaceful on the outside and there's a terrified silence on the inside, that's one thing that I'm talking about. And, and, and this person finally spoke up and it has created enormous conflict, as you might imagine. It, it turns out that people who are uh, prone to abuse others do not like being called out on their said abuse, right? And so there's courage in the speaking up, but there's also the courage in other family members stopping and listening and believing and loving this individual and inviting them in close and saying, we are here for you in all of your healing. There's, there is courage in the idea that these family members are talking to this patriarch and saying, just because you are family does not give you a blank check on unchecked behavior, right? Just because you are family does not mean that we have to suddenly reconcile and make right. No, we are not there. If we ever get there, that is like 35,000 steps down the road. There is a lot of walking to be done. That looks like courage to me. 
the kind of courage that Jesus says could feel like a cross upon our shoulders because when we see people, especially in our families, who are suffering, our job is not to try to mask that over or to rush to reconciliation or try to convince them that somehow they're wrong, but instead to come alongside the suffering and to pick up the cross and to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. That's, that's what the Jesus way looks like. Jesus says this is going to impact our families. And so there's nothing peaceful about the life of this family I know right now. Nothing peaceful whatsoever. But I do believe that the way that they are living right now, introducing this conflict, shining a light on the truth, and taking faithful steps forward, that looks a lot like the love of Jesus to me. Are you with me, church? And so Jesus is sending these young men out to preach and to teach and to heal and to comfort and to bring about this transformational kingdom of God that when we talk about it in real lofty terms can sound kind of ambiguous, but then when it gets real, it means like, oh, we're talking about transformation in people's individual lives, inside the home even. And he's telling them that it's going to cost them dearly, and it might even cost them their own families. And this is where I want us to understand clearly the context of these young men that he's telling them this. Because in these days, 2,000 years ago, your family was not just something that you felt an emotional bond to. It wasn't just a sentimental collection of people that you, you did holidays with. It was like your, your legal unit, right? And if you were going to have any wealth, if you were going to have any status, if you were going to have any place in society, your family was going to dictate that in large. And so being disowned was not just about no longer being invited to the family reunion. It was like you no, no longer have claim to the family land. You don't have any wealth. You don't, nobody knows who you are, and you just went from maybe here to way down there. That's what being disowned looks like. There are practical ramifications in a societal sense, and not just for you, but then for your offspring and their offspring and their offspring. This is a generational decision that these disciples are being asked to make. And so then it's very natural for us to go, so what's the win then, Jesus? Like, like what do we get out of this? You're, you're telling us there's a really long CVS list, uh, a receipt of things that could go poorly. So like, what's the good part, right? And, and Jesus doesn't get all prosperity gospel on them and say, yeah, if you come with me, like, I'm going to get you a bigger farm, right? Like, that's that's not what he says. We might wish that's what he says. But instead, a couple chapters later, Jesus offers some hope that I think is helpful. In Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 46, Jesus says this. So this is as the, the disciples have been sent out and they're returning. And in chapter 12, verse 46, it says, while Jesus was speaking to the crowds, his mother and brothers stood outside trying to speak with him. Someone said to him, look, your mother and brothers are outside wanting to speak with you. And Jesus replied, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, look, here are my mothers and my brothers. Whoever has done the will of my father who is in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. And so he's not casting a vision for them to gain some sort of new inheritance. And, and we talk about the inheritance of eternal life and heaven, and that's common language. And like, and yeah, that, that's all fine and good. I'm not here to say like heaven doesn't matter. But what I am saying is that when you're facing real life consequences for walking faithfully in your life, being told like, well, well heaven's going to be awesome, like that's great, 
that doesn't solve Tuesday for me though, right? Um, and so Jesus is trying to help them solve Tuesday. And what he says is not, I'm going to get you a bigger farm or, or I'm going to uh, get you a, a different adopted dad who's going to give you all the inheritance that you need. But instead, he says, I'm going to redefine what it means to be family. And so if you're losing family, like, yeah, you're losing all this practical stuff, but I also recognize you are losing relationships and you are losing uh, covenantal people. You're, you're, you're losing confidants. You're, you're losing uh, nostalgia. You're, you're losing so much in addition to a, a will at the end of life. And so he begins to talk to the disciples about this movement, not just being a socio-political movement, not just being a revolution, but really being a, a reorienting of the idea of family. Because maybe for you, family is not a helpful word. Or maybe for you, family is. But what Jesus is suggesting is that family for us in the context of the Christian faith means something bigger and more transformative than we might first think. That when we begin to walk in the love of God, we discover that we are joining into a family that transcends borders and walls and barriers and connects us with people that would otherwise be strangers in this life, but now we get to call friend. It makes me think in this week specifically of a couple of conversations I've had. One with a family who's going through some tough stuff right now, and it's because of the family that they experience here at AUMC that they were able to hold on till next Tuesday. Right? Or I think about the other family who is newer to this uh, community and city and, and was just hit with some really difficult medical news recently, but then was also able to find the connections and grounding because, you know, there is nothing worse than going through crisis alone. And they were able to show up for a community gathering and get to know people and see that they have family here in more ways than one. That's hitting at the absolute perfect time for this family. And so I believe that what God is up to here at AUMC is helping us to redefine family. For some of us, that means redeeming the word family. For some of us, that means reclaiming it or renewing it in a better way. But I believe Jesus is leading us to do something truly incredible here, and that is to foster family in the most sincere and faithful sense, a family that chooses to confront and love on the path towards peace, a family that walks in justice and holds each other accountable as we do so. A family that knows grace and shows grace when we are less than perfect. A family that sees us for who we are and loves us precisely as we are. And my friends, a family who shows up and picks up a cross when it matters the most. I don't know your family of origin, but I do know the family that Jesus is trying to build here. And if that's the kind of family that you are looking for, then you're in the right place. It takes work. It's not a mindset. It's not a feeling. It is a life that we get to live in God's love together. Let the family of God say, amen.